Welcome to this BJSM podcast, and you'll be listening to Tim Noakes. You know who Tim Noakes is. You've clicked onto this podcast for a reason. So let's say hi to Tim and look forward to a chat. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Aaron. You've spoken a lot about diet, and there's a lot of interest in the field. And I'd say there's a lot of confusion in the field right now. So I'm going to hope that you can shed some light on some key issues. The first one is this concept of insulin resistance. What actually is it? And then we'll talk about why is it's important. Yeah, I think that insulin resistance is probably the most prevalent medical condition in the world. And it's not something we taught about. And you have to suffer it before you realize. So I'm insulin resistant. And that's what really turned my whole thinking about nutrition completely on its head. Insulin resistance is a condition in which individuals are unable to store carbohydrates normally in their muscles and in their livers. And as a consequence, they have to convert the carbohydrate that they ingest into triglycerides firstly in the liver, but then that triglyceride is also exported to the rest of the body. And as a consequence, they get a liver abnormality, which is then probably central to most of the the problems of this condition. So insulin resistance ultimately leads to obesity, type 2 diabetes, probably cancer, may even be dementia, all linked to this inability to metabolize carbohydrate. And so where it happens or where it's of interest in athletes is that we tell athletes to eat lots of carbohydrate. And if they're insulin resistant, what's going to happen is that they're going to get more of these complications earlier in their lives than they might have if they have eaten a low-carbohydrate diet. And I think that's what happened to me because I developed type 2 diabetes earlier than my father. And my father was not an athlete, but he had not eaten the same mass of carbohydrate that I had. And again, the point was that I ate so much carbohydrate because I did so much exercise and thought that I was doing the right thing, replenishing only with carbohydrates. And instead, I was damaging my liver and my pancreas and perhaps other parts of my body. And that is my concern, that we are giving athletes advice to take high-carbohydrate diets based on studies done in usually quite good athletes who probably are all insulin-sensitive. And that's why we study them, because they're good athletes. And then we forget that they don't reflect what is the average athlete out there who is much more likely to be insulin resistant and would probably do a lot better eating less carbohydrate. And Tim, do you think insulin resistance is genetic exclusively or do you think that it might be modified by other factors? We're taught that insulin resistance comes secondary to obesity, that you're lazy and you eat too much, you get fat, and then you get insulin resistant. Well, that's nonsense because you can take a person who has insulin resistance and let them get them lose 80 kilograms as we have in some people and they're still insulin resistant. And my view is that insulin resistance is a genetic disorder. It probably had some biological value in our evolution and that's why it's so prevalent. And then you expose that person to a high carbohydrate diet from the moment they're born or in fact even in the fetus, they're exposed to high carbohydrate diets and then that, in my view, will promote worse insulin resistance and ultimately type 2 diabetes and obesity. And what's really interesting is the evidence that if you are diabetic and you're injecting insulin, the insulin makes you more insulin resistant. So insulin itself is a, is a cause of insulin resistance. So we have that evidence for 
increasing insulin resistance in patients treated with insulin. But in a sense, if you're an athlete and you're eating a high-carbohydrate diet and you're always spiking your insulin, you are inducing insulin resistance without realizing it because we as scientists have said, oh, but because you're an athlete, you'll be promoting insulin sensitivity in your muscles. Yes, but the diet that you're eating might be making you more insulin resistant. So that's, those are interesting points that we are now just beginning to study. Speaking about the science, I mean, isn't there a solid foundation for the evidence that carbohydrates make you perform better and make you recover well? When I talk about carbohydrates and fats and exercises, I begin with all the evidence I presented in Law of Running as to why carbohydrates are so fantastic and make you run faster and further. And if you listen to that evidence, you would be utterly compelled and say, well, it's clear. You must eat carbohydrates. And then I throw in the sideline of athletes who did very well in their youth and became insulin resistant in later life. And you see that their performance goes off and then it suddenly gets better as soon as they cut the carbohydrates. So it is true that there is really good evidence for, in, for carbohydrates helping you perform well if you're insulin sensitive. And I'll put it on record. I believe that the best athletes in the world, the best marathon runners, the best milers, the best 5,000, 10,000 meter runners are profoundly insulin sensitive and they probably need high carbohydrate diets to succeed. The problem is, if you're slightly insulin resistant and you put on that diet, you're not going to perform as well as they will. And that's where we made the error. So yes, there's plenty of evidence that when we deal with performance and when we're talking about insulin sensitivity, carbohydrates are essential to be the world's best. But that's not who we're talking to through the British Journal of Sports Medicine. We're talking to the people who are struggling to break five hours in the marathon or four hours in the marathon. They're a bit overweight. You know, we studied our own runners in Cape Town, and it turns out that 30% of people running half marathons are overweight, and about 10% are obese. How can it be? And the answer is, in my view, that they're insulin resistant and eating too much carbohydrate. But now let's take the, the world-class elite athletes. We don't really test them in the laboratory as they are tested in competition because we just do a single performance trial. We don't study them day to day. And feedback we're getting from elite athletes, many of whom are probably a little insulin resistant, are that when they go on the start, they recover more quickly. They're not as sore after training. Their performance goes up and they can train harder. And they're just loving it. And they can control their weight much more easily. So we've become too singular in our research, and we've focused in and we've reduced it to one variable. If I put you on a high-carbohydrate diet, will you cycle 20 kilometers faster than if you're on a lesser-carbohydrate a diet? But that's not what sport's all about. Sport is about recovery, degree of training, ability to train, inflammation, how you respond during competition. The athletes are telling us that they can make better decisions now when they're tired because of the start. And those are things that we have to look at. What's the risk of infection? If eating a high-carbohydrate diet, your immune function is probably impaired. And so then you get an infection shortly before the Olympics and your high-carbohydrate diet suddenly wasn't such a good idea. So I think we need to look a, take a much more holistic approach when we research athletes and the effects of diets on them.
And Tim, can you share one story, like a brief story of an example of one of those athletes who, um, and don't have to mention names if it's not appropriate, but just who was at a very high level and then became more insulin resistant and then put on weight and had struggles? Well, one really good example might be Shane Watson, the Australian batsman bowler, who has gone on the start for about a year, lost weight, and he says it's amazing because now he can control his weight without any trouble, without starving which beforehand he, he would find he couldn't eat properly and he just got fatter during the season and had thought that he would always be fat and now he's realized he doesn't have to be. And his compatriot, David Warner, the opening batsman for Australia, who's currently one of the top-ranked batsmen in the world, exactly the same. He lost weight and he suddenly said, I've got all this energy, which of course is the opposite to what we say. We say you need carbohydrates for energy. Well, speak to those two guys. Probably the best example I have is Bruce Fordyce, who won the Comrades Marathon in South Africa. That's a 90-kilometer race. It's the, it's the premier sporting event in South Africa. He won it nine times, and no one will ever match that. But as he got older, he got fatter, and he got slower. And it put on about 12 kilograms weight. He changed to this diet. He dropped 12 kilograms, and he'd reduced his time in the Comrades Marathon by two hours. He's still two hours slower than when he won the race, but he's now running at a speed that most people would love to, and he's 56. And in fact, he knocked five minutes off his time over five kilometers. He went from 22 minutes down to 17 and a half minutes over five k's at altitude, and this man's 56 years old. He completely rejuvenated his running, and his medical tests now are, are those showing the metabolism of a 15-year-old, whereas when he was on the high-carbohydrate diet, despite the fact that he was still running and has run more than 200 marathons, he couldn't control his weight, and his metabolic profile was a disaster. And people who are intrigued now can see a bunch of recipes and read about this on the Real Meal Revolution, of course, but can you just give a short version of some sample breakfasts and lunch and dinners? Like what would... Shane Watson or Bruce Fortas and you eat just briefly? Well, the key is what you don't eat, I think, and you don't eat cereals and grains and bread and pasta and rice and and potatoes, and you don't drink uh, sugar-loaded drinks anymore, and you don't add sugar. And once you cut all those things, then what's left? Well, for breakfast, it's eggs and bacon and sausages or, or salmon or kippers or other forms of fish or meat. And that, if you eat really well, should see you right through till 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon when you might have a snack on some nuts or avocados and then you'll have an evening meal of some more protein and fat, but again focusing on the fat, and that would might be fish or meat and lots of vegetables. And that's it. It's as simple as that. And it, it, the beauty is that once you realize what foods are good for you, 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 you eat from quite a restricted range, but you, you realize what you mustn't eat as much as anything. And then you begin to realize how little food you actually need to be healthy. I think we, we tend all to overeat, and we overeat on the stuff that just makes us want to eat more, and it's typically carbohydrate-based. So the, the key to this diet is that you lose your hunger. And now you, your body or your brain controls what you eat. In, instead of when you're eating carbohydrates, it's the carbohydrates that drive your addiction. So you're always looking for an addictive food, which is the carbohydrates. 
And the carbohydrates, let's remind everyone, there is no essential human need for any carbohydrate. We need essential proteins and we need essential fats, but there is no essential carbohydrate. And the greatest disaster to human health was when we replaced high-fat, high-protein diets with high-carbohydrate diets, and we made us eat a food stuff that we don't even need. And it's utterly amazing that science could have completely misled us in this way. How long does it take to stop waking up thinking about cereal? <laughs> about uh, two weeks, I think. For me, the sugar was a difficult one. It took me 14 months to get off sugar. And it's astonishing how my taste has changed. And I had the darkest piece of chocolate last night, and it tasted absolutely sweet. Now, when I was a child, dark chocolate I would, would spit out. And now, it, to me, it's, it's sweet. And if, I, if someone is to put sugar in anything I eat, I just throw it and spit it out immediately because it tastes so terrible. So that's interesting how you can completely change your taste. In my view, the best way to stay healthy and lean all your life is to get rid of the, the desire for sweetness because that's what really makes us fat and makes us choose addictive foods. Tim, um, two health concerns that people bring up, and you can direct folks to other um, videos of yours or sources if it's complicated, because we want to keep this brief. Um, the one is having high fats will give you heart attacks, and the second one is eating a lot of meat will give you bowel cancer. Well, bowel, bowel cancer is a carbohydrate-driven disease, so that one doesn't, doesn't worry me, and vegetarians have the same rate of bowel cancer as meat eaters. And so I think that if you want to prevent yourself from getting bowel cancer, first you must have colonoscopies, obviously. But secondly, you better avoid all the sugars and the high-carbohydrate diets because that's, what, that's what's causing bowel cancer. It's not meat and fat in the diet. And the second question is that it has never been shown that a high-fat diet causes either your cholesterol to rise or you to have heart disease. And I think that it's time that we really got that evidence into the mainstream. I would advise people to read Nina Teichel's book, The Big Fat Surprise. That's the best book of the last 10 years, or the best book since Gary Taubes is Good Calories, Bad Calories. And I think any medical doctor or person who's advising people what to eat, they have to read those two books. But if you still believe that fat in the diet causes heart disease, the first thing to do is buy Nina Teichel's book, Big Fat Surprise, and read it and be utterly astonished at the distortion of the science. And incidentally, the book was reviewed recently in the British Medical Journal, an editorial by Richard Smith, and he said, I could not believe how bad the science is and how big the distortion is that led the medical profession to believe that fat in the diet causes heart disease. There is simply no evidence for that statement at all. Speaking of Gary Tobes, you've organised a fantastic summit which is coming up in the end of February. Why did you organise a carbohydrate-free, a low-carb, high-fat summit? Well, it wasn't really my idea. It was the idea of Colin Thompson, who's Chris Barnard's granddaughter. And she saw what a pasting I was taking in the media in Cape Town, particularly from my medical colleagues at my own university and my own medical faculty. And she said, this is not right, it's unfair. And she had remembered the criticisms that had fallen on the Barnard family because of the, her grandfather's certain actions, which the family obviously regret. 
So she knew what what pressure this sort of exposure brings to the family. She said, it's time that we did something. So she she went immediately off her own bat and spoke to Eric Westman, Jay Wartman, Steve Finney, and Jimmy Moore, who were four of the leaders in this field. And she said, would you come to Cape Town if we would held a conference? And she said, we've got no money, but would you come? So they said, of course we'll come. The next thing is I went to Australia and spoke in Melbourne at a low-carb conference there. And as a consequence, eight people said, we have to come to your conference. <laughs> so, so but all of a sudden we had 12 speakers and we decided, well, let's go for it and let's just push it. And that's what's happened. We have 12 of the very best speakers in the world in the field. And they're here because they they want to make a statement. And they want to make that statement in Cape Town because Cape Town is where the Real Meal Revolution was written. And it's really revolutionized eating behaviors in South Africa. And they feel that if we can convert South Africa and Cape Town, then we can start converting the rest of the world. So I think that's why they're coming to Cape Town, because they see it as the spark which is driving this fire and this viral change in, in our understanding of what we should be eating. And do you want to give us a snippet from a couple of guests that you're particularly looking forward to hearing from? Well, from the United Kingdom, I'm really excited that Dr. Asim Malotra is coming because he's a cardiologist who's been tackling the cholesterol myth, and also he's very powerful on the sugar issues. And he's a published author. He's very much in the media in the United Kingdom. And in fact, is ranked as one of the top 10 scientists doing things in the public face that are making a difference. Then, apart from the names I've already mentioned, we have Michael Eads, who was, is a medical doctor who changed the, his diet about 20 years ago because he, he looked at what the ancient Egyptians ate and he said, well, that's that healthy, balanced diet. And he looked at how unhealthy they were. So he said, well, the ancient Egyptians have already done the experiment and proved that the healthy, balanced diet is unhealthy. Why should we go through it? So he changed and he produced a book called Protein Power, which was one of the first books I read. So he's been in the, in the field a long time. We mentioned Gary Taubes and his book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, which really laid down the mark and said, listen, guys, you've been talking nonsense and the science isn't there. And he wrote that book in 2005 or six, and that influenced me hugely. Then we have Andreas Ienfeld from Stockholm, who's the leading Swedish writer and publicist on the low-carb diet. We have Anne Childers from the United Kingdom, who's more involved in the neuropsychology of different diets. We have Christine Crono from Brisbane, Australia, who is has written books on diet. She's one of the first American, Australian dietitians to go this way, and she's a very persuasive force, and she was a vegetarian who was really ill and, and changed to this diet. Then we have from a South African who's living in Florida, Dr. Robert Sivers, who heads up a bariatric surgery unit in Florida, where they use mainly psychology and psychological interventions in the management of severe obesity in children. And they've reversed diabetes and obesity in these children, not just with surgery, but they understand that surgery isn't the solution, that you have to understand the way the child was brought up 
and also the role of carbohydrates in driving the, the addictions that these children have. So they've had some remarkable successes in reversing diabetes in young children using psychological interventions. And what he's really interested in me about is he said that hunger is, the biology of a hunger is that you feel hungry three times a day, but we also eat from a secondary control system, which is active every 20 minutes. And if you don't control that mechanism and don't use it to do other good things like writing or reading or talking to you on the telephone, and instead you eat, that's what you're, you define yourself and you become a beast. So he's the first person I've ever heard to talk about the emotional controls of, of overeating and how they use techniques to control that in their young children. And then finally from Australia's Gary Footka, who's an orthopedic surgeon, who set up a clinic to you treat people with a low-carb diet, and he's been almost expelled from the medical community in his city because he's, they said he's acting unethically. So he's great on explaining why is it that our profession doesn't understand why we do what we do and the fact that this is the most effective way to treat obesity and diabetes. So it's a, it's a very impressive lineup. It goes right back to, to Eric Westman and Steve Finney and Jay Wartman who were right there at the start with Atkins in the late 1990s. And it brings us right up to date with people like Dr. Asim Malotra, who are the most recent converts to this low-carb way of living. And so we've got the very best. We've got the people who've been there for a long time, and we've got people who've just, just joined it. And I think it's going to be a game-changer in South Africa, and hopefully it's going to stimulate similar conferences around the world. In fact, we've already had interest from four countries saying, can't we put this on in their own countries? And where are they, Tim? There's the United Kingdom, there's Australia, and the United States. Mm, and with some interest also from from Iceland, believe it or not. So I don't know whether Iceland has a problem. And then there's even from Doha, there's some interest as well. So I think it's going to be a huge success. It will be on the Internet, and so people will be able to see that when you see all the evidence, it is absolutely compelling that we've, we've just been giving the wrong dietary advice for too long now. And just a quick one, the bariatric surgery, I've heard that people just re, they lose weight for a while, but there are examples where people put on massive um, weight again over time. Is that your understanding? Yeah, indeed. I, I would never put a patient uh, with, with a morbid obesity on to bariatric surgery for the simple reason that morbid obesity is a brain disorder and you have to train the, the brain. I, I speak under correction. Robert Sive is the person we spoke speaking about. I've only met him once in Cape Town. His father taught me surgery, so that's why the connection is. And then he left the country and, and set up in Florida. But he indicated to me that 90% that of their focus is on non-surgical treatment of morbid obesity in children. And I don't know what role they give for surgery. All I know is that when we spoke, he only spoke about the non-surgical management of morbid obesity. But he is a surgeon, which is, makes it so interesting that here is a surgeon who realizes that you can't operate and cure medical brain disorder with surgery. 
Tim, we're getting to the 20 minutes, so I need to go and have a can of Coke. Um, uh, just joking. I'll have a couple of almonds later. Um, Tim, you've been criticised for making U-turns. Um, you know, it's like, well, you can't trust that Tim Noakes. He changes his mind. What do you say? It's really interesting because a lot of those people are academics, and, and I say, well, why do we have universities? If we knew everything, we wouldn't have universities, and we, you wouldn't have a job. So you better be very thankful that knowledge changes or you wouldn't be in business anymore. The reality is that uh, that you have to change your mind when the, when the data change. And the data change. In fact, the data were always there, but they were hidden. They were suppressed. And I suffered from groupthink, which is that you all get rewarded for thinking the same way. There's no reward for taking on your profession. That's what I've learned. I mean, in medicine, we are taught never question. Never question your superiors. They know. And if you want to preserve your career and have a decent career, you better not question. And I, you know what, I might past history of proving the central governor and the waterlogged stories. They completely went against groupthink. And there were moments in my life when maybe I did say that muscles regulate exercise performance, but now I know it's the brain. There were times when I said you must drink as much as possible during exercise. Now I know that kills you, that advice. And so this is just another example where, where I changed my position. And it was because the data, when I finally saw the data, I realized we'd been misled. And what worries me is, as I've thought more about it and read more widely, the, the scientific basis for medicine is dubious. It is, it is profoundly dubious. It is so influenced by other influences like governments and industries, and particularly the pharmaceutical industry, that you really have to be suspicious about every single thing you say in medicine. It's all up in doubt. And so... I just happened to fall into one area, which was nutrition, and discovered that the science behind the nutrition was appalling. But I would encourage every doctor to look at any evidence they think is untainted and absolutely true in medicine. They really need to think very carefully about it and, and question everything we do in medicine, because this experience has taught me that there's a lot of stuff in medicine that is not scientifically based at all although it appears to be on the surface. That's a great place to finish, and many people would resonate those comments now. And Ray Moynihan is obviously pushing the too much medicine, and uh, this may be an example of that, Tim. The conference is February 21-22 of 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we actually, because we've got so many speakers, we had to move it two days forward to 19th and 20th as well. So it's 19, 20, 21, and 22 in Cape Town in February of 2015. Tim, thanks for your time on the call for BJSM today. You're defining the word iconoclastic. They're going to make it a, a noun like Bradbury or Bradman. It'll be like uh, someone doing a noakes when they take on the establishment. Our listeners are going to have fun listening, debating, and following up. Thanks for your time today. Pleasure. Thank you, Carm. Lovely to be with you again. Speak to you again. You've been listening to BJSM Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, as you know, at BJSM underscore BMJ. And you can also follow at Prof Tim Noakes as one of the Twitter accounts. He has over 50,000 followers. There are linked sites to The Real Meal Revolution. And we'll pop a couple of those books that Tim mentioned on the site when you stop driving your car. Don't forget the BJSM app. Thanks for listening and have an active day.